you only see someone on stage for whatever, 10 minutes, 20 minutes, an hour. The other 23 hours of the day is when all that work gets done. Being extraordinary is having a relentless commitment during the unseen hours to work towards mastery of your craft and focus on the fundamentals. Being extraordinary is about doing the little things right every single day. In today's episode, I laugh it up with my friend and comedy coach, Robert Mack. Robert is an award-winning stand-up comedy veteran with over two decades of experience in comedy clubs and boardrooms around the world. He was the grand prize winner of Comedy Central's national stand-up competition and has appeared on Last Comic Standing, Dry Bar Comedy, and the very prestigious Just for Laughs Comedy Festival in Montreal. I met Robert four years ago after seeing him perform at a local comedy club, and soon thereafter, I hired him as my comedy coach to help me add some humor to my speaking and writing. Here's my conversation with the silly, yet brilliant, Robert Mack. Yeah, as you know, the, the focus of this season is on the unseen hours. So my, my first official question to you is, what do you think of just when you hear the term unseen hours and then start to give us a peek behind the curtain of how you utilize the unseen hours to be so well-crafted and so good on stage? I, I love the expression because I, I teach some comedy classes and yep. I tell them that you only see someone on stage for whatever, 10 minutes, 20 minutes, an hour, the other 23 hours of the day is when all that work gets done. And I don't think a lot of comics put in those hours. I, I would say that the, that the, the other edge, the comedy is a double-edged sword. One edge is, oh, wow, that looks so easy. A guy walks up to a microphone, talks, and the audience laughs, but they don't see uh, the failures. They don't see the scribbling of the notes. They don't see the rehearsing. They don't see the research. They don't see any of that stuff. So um, I think a lot of people get into comedy going, oh, it looks so easy. I'm going to do it. And they don't put in the work. And that's why they say the, the rule of thumb is it, you know, it takes 10 years to, to develop the skills to become a, a headliner. My um, experience is, is along, along that same timeline, I would say. Um, I've recently become a little bit more focused on, on certain habits that previously had been very sporadic, and now I'm a lot more focused. So I have a writing session in the morning that I do weekdays during the morning. People are out, um, so I have the place to myself. I, have, uh, I turn everything off, and I, I write for an hour. And at night, I've told myself for years, oh, at night, I'll you know, I'll write this and I'll do that. And I, I haven't been able to do it at night. I like to read. So in between my reading at night, I get my, my scripts, which are the printed copies of my material. And I do some rehearsing at night. So in the course of a week, I can kind of rehearse and master some material that previously would take me uh, a couple of weeks on stage to do it because stage time doesn't come up, uh, as often as I'd like, but I, I'm at home and everyone's asleep and I have time with the script to, to rehearse and memorize. So I'm, I'm putting in those hours and I find that it, it really helps. I don't, I don't show up on stage going, oh, what's the next line? I forgot what comes next because I've, I've rehearsed it to myself for, for a, a while before I, I take it out on stage. 
It's beautiful, but it's Utah, so they say it's be Utahful. Well, it's not be Utahful when you're camping in a slot canyon and there's a cloudburst, flash flood. They kicked us all out. I had to get a hotel, nothing fancy, just a room in this little mom and pop and mom 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 place. Why do you think they're called more moms? So you've been on a little bit of a whirlwind, huh? For a week, I was on the road in England and I got back about a week ago. That's so cool. Was that your first time over there for stand-up comedy? Uh, it was the first time performing there, yeah. Wow, how, how did that come to be? So, uh, I got booked to perform at a, at a corporate event. And so I contacted some people there and said, hey, I'm trying to fill these other dates. You know, the corporate event is on a Sunday. I'd like to get there early in the week and, you know, run through my set so that I'm, I'm not walking off a plane and going to a corporate event and learning, oh, you can't say this here or they do this this way. So I lucked out. I have a friend who, who lives there now and has been doing stand-up forever. And he has a book, 600-page book on British, the Br British DNA. Oh, my God. And their their personality really affects everything so they don't like big and loud they're very reserved and quiet and private and that sort of informs how you how one does a a, a show there so i didn't come out big and loud i came out self-effacing and and deprecating and quiet and you know they like smart stuff more than dirty stuff knowing all of that ahead of time i was able to to rehearse. And uh, by the time I got to the corporate gig, it, it was fine. When in the process, did you read that book? Did he give, like, had you been reading? I, I didn't read it. He's, he's been reading it since he moved there and gave me some highlights. You know, they don't like big, loud Americans. They don't like people who come out and brag. They like self-deprecating stuff. They like everyone taking their turn and waiting in lines. There's a lot of waiting in lines. So they don't like someone coming in going, Hey, now it's my turn. So all of that stuff I, I took in and, and said, okay, let's not do this braggy joke up front. Let's do that one at the end after they like me. And let's come out with some shorter things to get their attention and win them over. You know, the same rules that you would apply to any audience. Get to know the audience and get them to like you and trust you and listen to you. And, uh, and then you could take them on your journey. You're the smartest guy I ever met. I just love the concept and obviously it plays so well into this whole perspective of the unseen hours that you're doing that type of due diligence and that you're you're thoughtful and empathetic enough to know that, hey, when I'm going into new territory, especially in a new country with completely different culture, you know, I want to be respectful of that and I want to position myself so that I can have the biggest impact on them. So I, I really commend you for doing that work. That's amazing. Well, thank you. But it, it's it's more than that. It's also like I don't want to trip over my feet, you know, coming off of the plane, you know, so it's mostly self-preservation. I don't want to look and sound like an idiot. And uh, like I said, thankfully, I have this friend who's like, oh, you know, you got to do this and don't say this. And they use this word for that. And all of that stuff, all just tiny little tweaks were, were such an important difference between a, a set that could have been more hit or miss to one that just really hit very well. 
My brain is so dense with ideas, I don't want to make it sound like I'm bragging, but I'm probably the densest person in this room. <laughs> in fact, one of America's smartest doctors is so interested in my great ideas that she interviews me every week in her office for nearly an hour. During our last interview session, she calls them sessions because they're obviously like music to her ears. I call them obsessions because she writes down everything that I say. She asked me, Robert Mack from robertmack.com. If your house were on fire and you could only remove one thing, what would it be? And as always, there are no right or wrong answers. And I said, well, I'd probably remove the fire. Now, one of the reasons I love your work so much and I love your comedy, it's incredibly insightful. It's very intelligent. You don't really go blue, uh, you know, maybe make a reference here or there, but that's just not your shtick. You, I think, do a brilliant job of kind of some self-deprecation in an appropriate way. So it sounds like you were already going to be a pretty good fit for that type of audience. It sounds like there was a lot of alignment between what you're most comfortable with and, and what culturally is most appropriate over there. So do you feel like you had to make a lot of changes or were they really just these really minor tweaks and kind of- They, uh, they were minor tweaks, certainly, but I think it was important to know how that audience thinks. I mean, it is, like you said, it's a whole culture that that approaches things differently. It's very much like, oh, please, you go first. No, no, you go first. And here, comedy is, is, is aggressive and mean and in your face, and there it's, it's a whole different thing. But previous to the trip, a lot of people said, oh, they're gonna like you because you are a good fit. Your material will fit there. So, so to answer your question, I would say it was mostly a good fit, but the little tweaks and adjustments made it an even uh, a better uh, fit. And I, I'm looking to go back. I mean, it was such a, an exciting time. Someone has, is talking about a festival there. Uh, I just, uh, minutes before logging in, uh, I received payment for one of the shows that I did. They want me back. The corporate client that I have next summer is doing a show in Paris. So next summer, I'm going to try to do the same thing in Paris. And then the following year, we'll be back in England. So if I could go to England every year or other year and slowly build build a, a series of shows, you know, that, that would be great. I like it a lot. I would imagine if the show comes through in Paris, you'll follow a similar template. You'll learn everything you can about the French culture and, and what would work best them and what nuanced differences you'll need to make. And uh, yeah, I mean, we're just going to send you off on an international tour where you'll do this in, in all sorts of different countries. I, I would love that. I'm, I'm talking to a friend in a couple of days who is a, an internationally touring comedian and he has a new album out and every, every section of the album is from a different country. And he knows each nation's uh, uh, quirks, as it were. Uh, the downside is uh, Paris. I don't know anyone in Paris. I know some other people in South of France who run some uh, expat shows, English expat shows. So I, I might get some sets in, but I don't have someone on the ground who knows the scene as well as, as I had last week. Yeah. But, but yeah, you're right. I'll, I'll do as much research as I can and get to know 
what they expect and what they want and what they appreciate and and try to make that work. Were the, was there much difference between the set you did uh, kind of in the comedy clubs in England and the actual corporate group that you spoke to or or even on a broader scale, anytime you do a corporate function versus a traditional nightclub type function, is there a big difference in the material or what what are the nuanced differences there? This particular show was pretty much the exact same. I, I did I did all week. I landed on a Wednesday. I did a show Wednesday night. I did a show Thursday night. I did a show Saturday, which was like my final dress rehearsal. And I did almost the exact same thing, little changes here and there uh, for the corporate show on Sunday. And it just so happens that my act is, uh, works the same in a club as it does in a corporate event. I had one of those things that um, uh, fancy people have in the morning. Day job, I had a day job. And... <laughs> The first thing you have to do when you have a day job is you have to get up early in the morning. And um, that's inconvenient for me because they don't give you a wake up call from the office. Hello, rise and shine. Time to get out of your manjamas and come on down to the office so we could steal your best ideas. No, you have to get up on your own early in the morning. So I had to get this uh, alarm clock. Have you seen these, anyone, Bueller? It's like a regular clock, but it's hooked up with this alarming device. And what it does is it wakes you up abruptly in the morning, which is the best way to get up when you've been unconscious for a third of a day. According to nafticians and sleepologists, you don't want to get up gradually. No, you get up like a jackrabbit. Oh, wow. And it wasn't a particularly long set, so it wasn't like I had to make a lot of adjustments. It was a shorter, tighter set that I was able to rehearse a number of times. I think other performers, you know, everyone's different, but you nailed it. My act is pretty much as, as clean and appropriate for a corporate event to begin with, so I didn't have to, I didn't have to edit too much. When you look back, kind of even when you're first getting started in comedy, is kind of going the the clean, insightful, intelligent route, has that always been very authentic and genuine to you? And do you find some of the uh, blue slash politically incorrect uh, humor, is that something that's funny to you, but you've just chosen to go down a different path because that's more authentic? Or talk to me kind of about your process of why you've chosen to be a, a clean comic when, as you've said, here in the States, the, the curse words and the expletives and the blue, you know, off-color material seems rampant. Uh, good question. Uh, when I started, I found it was very easy to get laughs doing, doing blue stuff. You know, I would do a joke about dating and it turns out that I had to pay for the date because it was a prostitute because I'm not that good of a, of a guy, whatever. And so I learned like, ah, these, I'm getting laughs. I'm getting laughs by being dirty. And I didn't realize uh, until later why that was and blue stuff blue topics and blue language it's like a crutch and it almost always works and you can learn to craft a joke and learn what the crutch is as long as in time you take the crutch out and 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 do it clean I think there, there are some people who are dirty that I find very funny because they don't they don't rely on it they just kind of maybe pepper their their language with uh, expletives that are that are just very funny. There's a guy named Doug Stanhope, for instance, yes. 
who has some really vulgar stuff, but other times he just tells a story and he just drops a lot of F-bombs because that's the way he talks. And I, I don't have a problem with it. Think it's ADD. No, it's not ADD, I'm thinking. I'm thinking about a lot of stuff. It's not ADD. Yeah, I stutter a lot, I stuff up, but I, that's because I'm always thinking, well, you're not listening to me because I'm thinking about something that's more interesting than you. I'm trying to, I'm trying to build a, a perfect utopian society in my head and what are you talking to me about but if every joke is relying on a dirty word to get the punchline or a sex joke or a bathroom joke those are very popular these days i think i think you have to learn how to write a clean joke to get away from that you're so wise and i started to get a couple of corporate gigs and i realized oh if i get rid of this joke and this joke then I don't even have to worry about my act. Mm. And it was a financial thing at first. And, and just for the, the people out there listening, there's, they say there's no middle class in comedy. Clubs are the, the best place to go and work because they're designed for comedy. A corporate gig could pay 10 times that. So it behooves you to learn how to perform for them. So my, my comedy diet is I have some corporate gigs and those pay the bills. And then I have some club gigs and those allow me to work on new material and they don't pay the bills as much, but uh, there's something from there. And then there's the open mics where you're just trying stuff and rehearsing new stuff. Do you find a big difference in the audience with a corporate gig and a, and a, and a nightclub gig? You know, the, the corporate gig, I'm assuming those people have to be there because, you know, their bosses told them they have to be there. It's a required function versus, you know, someone at a comedy club, they are paying their money and they are opting in because they want to come laugh. Um, do you notice a big difference between the two or at this point, because you're so seasoned, is it an audience is an audience and you're just really good at making people laugh? Well, I, I thank you. I, I have become good at it and I've learned how to do it, but you're, you're absolutely right. A, an audience at a comedy club has opted in. They want to have fun. They're going to a club because that is the best place to go. The people at a corporate event might not even know that there's a comedian after dinner, but they are obligated to be there. And so sometimes they're not paying attention as much. And sometimes that works in my favor because they're like, oh, wow, this is actually more entertaining than, than the magician we had last year. So sometimes I'm able to surprise them. What I really like about the corporate gigs is they tend to be a little more sober. They tend to be a little more uh, older, college educated. And so I can connect with them. I'm not, I'm not dealing with drunks at a, at a club sometimes. If you're headlining at a club, when I take the stage, People have been in the room for a couple of hours and they could get really drunk and my stuff if you're not paying attention to my stuff yeah i look like an idiot on stage next time you get some round trip airline tickets and they ask what your final destination is say here it's a, it's a round trip i don't have time to explain each of these to you guys so sometimes i have to deal with putting out fires of, of babysitting drunks that doesn't happen at the corporate event. So the corporate events are older, sober people paying attention. Uh, the clubs are people who are at different levels of, of drunkenness, but they're all ready to laugh. So it's it's a little bit of both. How long have you been a stand-up comedian? So when, when did you do your very first open mic night? And was that your first introduction into the craft? 
I, I watched comedy for a while and I went to some open mics to see how other people could do it. And that, that seems to be the path many people take. They go to an open mic, they go, I could do that. I could bomb the way that guy did. Uh, or if it's a real good comic, they go, oh, that's so easy. I could do that. So either way, I think um, watching open mics is a, is a good entree into it. My first set on stage was 29 years ago, something like that. And I was very lucky because it went well. I was given a nice spot in the lineup. A lot of times they'll put the brand new people up first. The crowd isn't warmed up. They're still ordering drinks and sitting down. Luckily, I went up like fourth or fifth. And the hosts, uh, hostess made a, a point to say, hey, it's this guy's first time. Um, show him some love. Pay attention. Please be kind. And the combination of that. And I had written some material that I bounced off some of the other guys and they liked it. It went well. And uh, I got bit. I got the I got the bug and, uh, and came back the next week and did it again and again. And there have been a, a, a lot of sets that haven't gone as well as that first one. But I think the fact that it went it went over so well just uh, was was the boost that I needed. We'll get to what you do when things don't go so well in a moment. But I want to go back to this daily writing practice because that's kind of the heart of the the unseen hours. So talk to me. Um, a little get a, elaborate a little more on what that process looks like. Are you constantly going around either with the the notes in your phone or a, a, a legal pad and writing down funny things that you see or observe throughout the day? And then when you sit down for a writing session, you're expanding on those. Or what is it that you're actually writing? Or what's the the inspiration behind what you're writing in these these daily writing sessions? That that's pretty much what I do. I I collect notes during the day. It used to be a notepad. It used to be a little thing I put in my pocket. Um, nowadays I can dictate into my watch or into my phone, or if I do have a notepad handy, I'll put a couple words down. Then, um, in the morning during the, my writing session, I, I, I go to the part of my notes that are, are called bits. And, and today I'm going to work on this one and this one. And I expand whatever the idea was that I, that I jotted down. And sometimes it means, uh, sometimes it just, an additional point to a previous bit. So I get that one out and I, I rework the whole thing. Sometimes it's a brand new thing. Uh, oftentimes I'll have an idea for a joke. You know, I was walking in the park and I saw somebody walking their dog and then our neighbor has a dog that's barking. And so now all of a sudden I get an idea that connects those. And so I might have joke uh, pieces that didn't really form into anything, but now I have some mortar to hold those bricks together. So I think the one of the most important things, and this is what I try to convey in my, my joke writing class, is you have to write this stuff down. Some people don't write it down. They're like, oh, I'll remember it. And then, you know, how do you remember a joke five years later or five months later? But now I have a record and I can look up dog in my computer in the section of jokes and all the ideas I've had with dogs show up. I'm like, oh, that's the one. And now I can, you know, put those ideas together to make something new or large or, or reimagined. I went to the National Zoo hoping to see some national animals, you know, like a pigeon or sewer rat. But everybody there is lined up to see what? Panda, yeah, which is not a national animal. 
It's an immigrant and it's stealing jobs from American animals. Well, two questions. One, and are you writing, when you're writing in these sessions, are you writing out long form as if you were writing prose for a book or you are writing the script to a movie? Like, are you literally writing every single word to the dog joke or is it yes. like a series of, okay, you are. So you're writing everything longhand. Yes, I, I, I wish I could show you one, but I write everything out the way I'm going to speak it on stage. And that might have errs and ums and so's and all of that. I heard that Woody Allen wrote out his, or, or some of his material, he would put in the, the ums and ahs even. Uh, I, don't, I don't do that. I try to make it as, as literal as possible without all the those ticks that speakers like you would know. I don't even know what they're called, but they have a name. Filler words. Filler words, all those filler words. I try to take those out and try to make that script as accurate and realistic as possible. And then I print it out and then I can work on that and make, it, make notes on that. And that script becomes vital because I can carry it around. I can go on a walk. I can read it on the bus. I rehearse it at night. But when I do a set, I can compare my recording to what I wrote and say, oh, you know, this line should have come earlier or this line wasn't worth it and cross it off. And this line got the biggest laugh. So let's end with that. So that script becomes vital because it's the, the tool that, that shows how the audience responded, which, is, which teaches you where to edit. The audience will tell you where to edit based on, uh, you, listening to the recording of your set, you will know what things worked and what things didn't work. You, you, you see somebody walking their dog at the park, your neighbor's got a dog, you think there's, there's a joke in here somewhere, so you jot those little phrases down. Then in a morning writing session, you sit down and you actually elaborate on that and try to construct an actual joke or, or even a, a lengthier part of the bit. Uh, you print that out, you make changes as needed, but you're continually rehearsing this. Now talk about how and when does that get integrated on stage, do you do you still go to open mic nights where you try new stuff out? Uh, do you next time you have one of your actually headlining sets, do you save two minutes to try to shoehorn that in just to see if it works? How do you introduce it on stage to then continue to refine it to know whether this is a keeper or not? Yeah, your your questions are great. It seems like you're ready to jump into to stand up yourself. I'm I would I would do both both methods. Uh, an open mic is great because there's no pressure and they're expecting people to try out new stuff. So I can go up there and sometimes I'll, I'll have the notes with me to, to remind myself, oh, that's the, the phrase I wanted to use. But also when I'm doing a long set, I'll sandwich it in between hits, bits that I know will work. And uh, that's a great way to introduce something new if it's shorter and if it kind of goes on topic if I'm talking about neighbors and then I've got this bit about my neighbor's dog and these other dog things and I could try it out there. And that is great because sometimes that's more of an honest response from an audience because they've been seeing tried and true stuff and the response is probably going to be genuine when it comes to this newer stuff. But it's easier, I think, for me and probably you as a speaker as well to deliver something with confidence after you've been doing 40 minutes of other confident stuff. And now we slip in the new one and, and test drive it that way. Yeah. Um, but really, uh, I still do open mics. There was a time when I thought, you know what? Uh, they're a waste of, of time. I, I, was, I was looking at corporate gigs and the amount I'm making at a corporate gig 
per minute that I'm performing. I compare that to an open mic. And I'm like, why am I doing open mics? And then I realized, you know, everything provides. Uh, the corporate gigs provide an income. Uh, the open mics provide that low pressure stage time. Yeah. So I'm able to, I, I was able to, to, to reframe all of my sets and some are uh, allow me to to work on new material some allow me to not work on new material but but make a mortgage payment but i'm starting to do more mics these days because the rooms are opening up now uh, i did one i did a show last night and i was able to work in some new stuff and that's that's the best way to do it is a little bit at a time and maybe that dog bit eventually grows and grows and grows and each time i do it i can add a new line after you know, watching or listening to the recording of the set and seeing seeing what works. That's the smartest thing I've ever heard anyone say about anything. Because you're basically using now at this point in your career, open mics are kind of your your laboratory. I mean, it's it's your gem, if you will. It's your practice ground. So talk to me a little bit more. So you are uh, recording. So I assume you're videotaping almost every set you do so that you can go back and, and study the game film, if you will. How do you decide if something doesn't go well, the joke just doesn't get the response that you'd been hoping for, when do you make the discernment on whether to just drop that, hey, I guess it's not as funny as I thought, or say, no, I'm going to keep tweaking it. I'm, I'm going to move this line around, or I'm going to substitute a different word. Like, how much work do you put in to revive something that you thought would be funny in the first place, even if it doesn't land with the audience? That's a, that's a good question. Um, sometimes I, I can do it once and go, oh, that was a bad idea. Sometimes I'll try it 10 times because I know it's going to work and it's just, I, I didn't do it in the right place or it's too close to something else. There's a new line that I'm working on right now and I've tried it twice and I realize why it's not working. It's, it's, it's too literal and the, the left turn doesn't work because they don't see a left turn because it, that one that one took two uh, two attempts and and just to just to clarify i've been recording my sets uh on audio for for as long as i've been doing it and that's that's my preferred method these days a lot of people they get their phone and set up a little tripod i i don't like to do that it's it's a little cumbersome for me my act as you know is mostly uh verbal Yep. So the, the, the physicality of it isn't as important to me. I like to put a, a mic, a clip on a mic or, or just put uh, my phone on the stage and the audio is much better than, than what you would get if you set up a tripod on the other side of the bar. Mm -hmm. So that, that, that's a difference. That's a stylistic thing, I guess. When I was there, somebody said I was condescending. Do you know what that means? Probably not. <laughs> Condescending is when a drink warms up and drops of water form on the outside of the box. Because I bring the heat. Now, to make sure we're all speaking the same language, you've got a, a joke, which I guess is kind of a singular premise. You, you have a bit. Now, is that my like more of an expansive version of a joke, or is it kind of a few jokes together? And then your set is, is basically the whole act for that performance. Am I somewhat correct on terminology or can you clarify? Yeah, a, a set is is what you do that night. Okay. And a set is a small portion of your whole body of work. Yep. A joke, a joke could be one line. I've got a joke about 
the weather. Seriously, I, I cannot believe this weather because I'm an atheist and we have trouble believing, but. <laughs> or it could be a series of related things. Like I've got a, a, a joke about global warming that has a joke about the metric system and has a joke about solar energy. Global warming is out of control, but I have a great idea on how to fix it. Everybody needs to run their air conditioner all the time with their windows open. <laughs> It's a no-brainer, which is how I thought of it. <laughs> when you're hot, you turn on the air. When the planet's hot, doy, just turn on the air. What could be obviouser than that? I got the idea when I saw a cat go from the sun to the shade. Yeah, when hot, add cold. You'll be less hot. I don't know what part of that flowchart is tripping all you guys up, but even Mr. Pickles has it figured out, all right? It's, it's not rocket surgery, okay? So a, a joke could be um, one line, or it could be a, a bit. Uh, and a, a, a bit is another mm, nebulous term as well. I would I would say a bit is is a combination of a, a couple of jokes on one topic. Um, you might have a bit on 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 being a dad, which includes a joke about you know bedtimes and screen time and playing basketball. Um, and all of those might be considered individual jokes that come together under the umbrella of my my dad bit. Did that answer it? It does. No, that makes sense. So I'm picturing now that, especially after doing this for 29 years, you have a massive archive uh, or a la carte menu of different jokes, different topics, different bits. And then you're taking from each of those to build each set. But I would imagine at this point, after doing it for 29 years, that archive is so massive. How are you deciding what to do on any given night or, or say for this corporate group? Is it, is it the stuff that you consider the A plus of all of your material? Is it the stuff that's, that's most recent? I would imagine you're not doing a ton of stuff that you did 29 years ago. Maybe you are, but like, how, how are you figuring out what to use when you have so much at your disposal because of just the sheer time you've been devoted to your craft? Well, a lot of my older stuff, uh, I look at and cringe because I feel like my writing is much better and my performing is much better now. So there's a lot of old stuff that I just, uh, I have forgotten because after you do a joke 10 times or a hundred times, you, you go like, oh, I've got this new thing now. And a lot of stuff gets pushed out that, that you end up forgetting. Um, I'm actually starting a, a new project uh, coming up. Uh, I'm gonna call it Time Machine. And uh, I'm going to go through and, and find all these older bits that are very dated and, and, and make a video and make it black and white and look like an old historic thing and, and, and do these older jokes that for one reason or another didn't work too well or just became tiresome. So there, there's a lot of older stuff. The stuff I'm generally working on is, is the more recent stuff. And, uh, uh, you know, I just came back from England. So I've been doing stuff about uh, English food and there was a heat wave there. So that allows me to talk about um, global warming and, and some of my environmental stuff. And uh, I have some new material that I wrote based on my trip there. And so the stuff I'm working on now is a couple hits from the past, a couple things retweaked and some, some newer stuff. I would say for the most part, I'm always, working on stuff that's more more recent.
I want you to elaborate on this and maybe I'm a little bit off base. I've seen you perform a few times and I absolutely love your comedy and I've gotten to know you off stage as well. And you are a, a kind, thoughtful, compassionate, sincere guy. Part of what I love about your comedy is you, you almost, I don't want to say play a character, but you, when you're on stage, you have this persona of a guy that is so confident and so sure and so full of himself. And that's where some of the self-deprecation comes in so masterfully. Talk to me a little bit about kind of your decision to do that. And if you even consider that an accurate evaluation, and then how close is the, the Robert Mack we see on stage to the Robert Mack that's just going through life? You know, what, what are the major differences between the two? I, I would say that uh, everything on stage is, uh, uh, is accurate. I, I would say there's a kernel of truth in, in everything you see in every performer on stage. Um, years and years ago, I, I, got a, I got some feedback that I, I, I couldn't understand. People were saying that, you know, I come off arrogant or, or aloof. When I started, I was very, I was very shy. I didn't like to, to talk to people after a show. And I, I think some people interpreted that as being aloof. And some of my stuff is kind of smarter than, you know, smarter than you. I'm the smart guy in the room. Went to this big membership uh, book place and I don't know what the clerk's problem was, but I gave him the book and he said, is that it? And I said, yeah, that's it, catch 22. Well, I need to see your membership card. Oh, I don't, I don't have a membership card. How do I get one? You have to buy something. Well, I'm buying catch 22, not without a membership card. So <laughs> I didn't get the catch 22, but that's right, many of you didn't either. So instead, <laughs> I got uh, to kill a mocking clerk is what I got. <laughs> it's in the how-to section. Next to death of a salesman. That guy was a real Moby. And I, dis I, I stumbled onto this character who's a dumb guy who thinks he's smart. So, yes, that's, so that's, that's I, it, I do consider it a character. And when I talk about uh, it to other comedians, we talk about him, we, you know, he does this and he says that, and it allows me to do my smart stuff without sounding condescending. Mm -hmm. And it allows the audience to have something that's a little more dynamic than just one thing. It's, it's a character that's got this you know, backstory or, or, or something with a little bit more texture. And uh, I, I went through a phase when I said, everything I'm gonna talk about on stage has to be 100% true. And I think, I think there's a part of comedy that supports that. But then I, did, I started playing this character and it's very fun to play something different because he can get away with stupid stuff. He can get away with murder. He can get away with all this other stuff because it's, a character and the audience knows it's a character. So they usually, sometimes they don't know that. Sometimes they think I'm a dumb guy, <laughs> which is very funny, but it allows, there's a, a bit of separation and it's fun to play that because I can turn it on and, and turn it off. My boy's wicked smart. And when I discovered this character, which was 15 years ago or something, I decided to run with it to see how far I could go. And it was just the most enjoyable thing to, to put on a costume and a mask and play something that's based on truth, but has a lot of fiction in it.
that is um, ridiculous. And and the performance itself, you know, I get a lot of comments that it's that it's smart and intelligent, but that is it's it's, it's just an act. It's it's so I get the best of both worlds. I get to do talk about what I want to talk about through the mouth of a dumb guy who sometimes <laughs> doesn't say it right. I think it's brilliant. Oh, yeah. I think that the concept of being a dumb guy who thinks he's smart. Yeah. It gives you so much freedom to do so many things because you are an incredibly insightful and intelligent person. But yeah, that can come across as condescending if you don't add in that layer of this guy's actually a little bit of an aloof doofus who thinks he's really smart. To me, that's what makes your work so, so funny is that, you know, juxtaposition between the two. Well, thank you. And, and I'm, I'm so happy that I stumbled. I literally like, oh, I'll try this. And uh, I got booked to do a show. I was the MC at a show where people were reading essays and monologues. It was called Monologue Cabin. So I played a, a park ranger and it was the first time that I worked this dumb guy into it and it just it clicked it felt good and but again if i don't play a dumb guy i think i sound like a know-it-all right and that i think is off-putting but being being dumber than the audience is I, it makes it accessible i'm a motivational speaker and i'm really good i speak to people and five minutes later they're on their feet motivated out of the building to do something better with their lives <laughs> Sometimes you're even running. <laughs> I have the key that unlocks doors in people's minds. Why do you think they call me door key, okay? <laughs> I, because my mom keeps my Star Wars action figures locked up in another room. No, that's just a coincidence. It's because <laughs> I open doors in people's minds. The, the very first um, memory I have of, of, of some comedy, my, I was like, six or seven my dad came into the bedroom he's like come come and watch this on the tv and i went out there and it was uh abin costello doing the baseball sketch who's on first the fellow playing first base for st louis who the guy on first base who is on first well what are you asking me for i'm not asking you i'm telling you who is on first i'm asking you who's on first that's the man's name that's whose name yes well go ahead and tell me who the guy on first who the first base who is on first have you got a first baseman on first certainly then who's playing first absolutely and I'm like, that guy is so dumb, he can't figure it out. And I'm smarter than that dumb guy. And it was just, and maybe that stuck with me, but, but the fact that you can feel better than the person on stage, knowing or not knowing if it's a character or not, it, it's like you said, it's given me a lot of range because I can do dumb stuff and I can do smart stuff. But at the end of the day, the audience is much more open to me because I'm, I'm self-effacing. Yes, which is which is another reason why it it translated very good to the the British audiences. Yeah, I bet it does absolutely because it, it it laces in some unconscious humility, which then draws the audience in. Like we we like you and we're cheering for you and we want you to do well because we almost kind of feel bad for this dumb guy, you know, in in a beautiful way. So I think that's that's brilliant. Now. Talk to me about now, anytime I've come seen, seen you live, you've absolutely killed and you've done a brilliant job. But I would imagine over the course of 29 years, there have been a few sets that uh, maybe there were some crickets. Uh, maybe I guess at the worst case, there were some hecklers or uh, somebody yelling, you suck from the back. Talk to me about some of the either bits, jokes or entire sets that didn't go well 
And how did you handle that in the moment? And then how did you handle that when you got off stage? Ah, uh, wow. Well, I try not to remember those. Um, <laughs> well, here, here's an example of, of something I remember once. You know, I, I talk in my act about how smart I am. And like, uh, I have a line about the smartest guy in the room is probably Moy. I motivate people to do good things and I wean them off their bad habits. I'm a huge wiener. You can go online. <laughs> Google it up and tell me what you see. <laughs> Probably Moy. And somebody once in the audience yelled out, it's pronounced moi, which just told me that, oh, they don't, they don't get it. Right. And this was at a, uh, at a corporate event. It was a holiday party. We were in some weird um, room where I'm doing comedy. There's a pizza in the back and people are walking up and getting their slices of pizza and there's free massages going on in the corner. And I'm doing this material and people are, you know, crossed arms staring at me, telling me that I'm saying the words wrong, which is, that's what the joke is. Of course. And a guy came onto the stage or the performance area, it wasn't really a stage. And he, he's, you know, he said, give me, give me the mic here. And I thought he wanted to say something to the audience. And he took the mic and said, all right, you're done. And, and that was, and then I, I just, I walked back to the hotel. It was like humiliating. I, I'm not trying new stuff at a corporate event. I'm doing the stuff that's going to hit because that's an important gig. Of course. And I, I was doing the hits and they just, they just didn't get it. And I, you know, I scratched my head. I was furious. I was humiliated. I was living in Tucson, Arizona at the time, and this gig was in Albuquerque, New Mexico, and Southwest flies through there a lot. I went, I looked at my watch and I went back to my hotel and I tried, instead of taking my early morning flight the next morning, I tried to get a flight that night just to get out of there because it was, the night was done and there was no reason to hang out. I've had a couple of things like that, that I just, I don't get why they don't get me. Right. And that happens every once in a while, not nearly as much these days because after after many years you you there might be a joke here or there that's a dud but for the most part most of the sets are going to be successful speaking of moms the other day after morning nap <laughs> my mom pat came down to the basement even though she's not allowed to without permission and she said, stop eating all the chicken salad. I said, I could have as much chicken salad as I want. If you didn't want me to have any chicken salad, you shouldn't have put it on the share shelf in the first place. <laughs> and she got really mad. She says, no, don't eat the chicken salad because it might be tainted with that avian bird flu that's come back and has already killed a couple people in Canada. And a couple months before that was the, um, the E. coli that was in the Chipotle burrito place. And a few years before that was the salmonella that was in the spinach and a bunch of people got sick from that. And then before that was the listeria in the can and like 30 people died from that. And a few years before that was a mad cow disease that came a couple different times. And then before that was that tainted apple juice that killed some people. And a couple years before that was that tainted OJ that killed two people with a knife. I was working at a place in Reno once where they, at a club, and they just, they just didn't get me. And I'm up there struggling, doing jokes. And they were just like, meh. Yeah. They weren't really heckling. They just didn't get it. And I came off stage and one of the other comics said, you know, why didn't you rip into them? And I, I didn't even think of that. 
my thought on stage was like, are we, am I even speaking English? Why are you not getting this? It was just such a swing and a miss that I didn't even think of going, you know, you guys are idiots. Right. And someone had to remind me of that because it, it threw me for such a loop. I couldn't think straight. Well, it, it, at least it sounds like those experiences are very few and far between compared to the ones that go really well. So I, 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 you're certainly trending in the right direction. And yeah, I mean, I know even though as a keynote speaker, uh, for context, for everyone listening, you've helped me interject more humor into my keynotes. You know, we did those sessions a couple of years ago and I found them incredibly valuable. And there'll still be times where I'm giving a keynote and obviously I'm not a stand-up comedian when I'm doing that, but I'll say a line that nine times out of 10 gets a nice chuckle from the audience and it'll just go flat for whatever reason. You know, I'd like to believe I'm still delivering it in the same way with the same timing, but you just don't get the response. And I know even in a keynote, that's a really unsettling feeling. When you say something, you expect the laugh, like, hey, I did my part. You guys need to do your part. And they don't. It's really uncomfortable. But then thankfully, I move on to my next part, which. But do you do you stumble a bit and does it throw your confidence? And what I've chosen to do, and this was what I was going to ask you, I immediately make note of the elephant in the room. I will say something to the effect of, you guys know you were supposed to laugh at that, right? And then that usually gets a little bit of a chuckle or, you know, I'll say something like, boy, tough crowd that killed last week when I was in Aspen. And then you get a little bit of a laugh. And, you know, so it's kind of part self-deprecation, but part acknowledging the elephant in the room. But that's easy for me because then I'm moving on to some material that's not supposed to be funny. I mean, I can't imagine it's supposed to be funny for 20 straight minutes, joke after joke after joke. And if four or five of them fall flat, I would almost feel like I'm drowning. And, and well, four or five, yes, they, they would notice that. But if one joke doesn't work, you know, they say the rule of thumb is just move on and don't address it because they, don't, they might not even know it's a joke. Because, I mean, there's a lot of stuff that are setups. Yeah. Or, or just, you know, the, the filler stuff to get to the next joke. And they, that thing that didn't get a laugh may have been that. So when you tell a joke, they're not necessarily expecting you to have a bunch of jokes. So you could just no laugh, just keep moving like, like you meant that. You reminded me of a story where I had a, a, a joke that didn't, that didn't land that threw me for a loop and uh, a, a little bit of context. Context is everything. I was hired to uh, perform comedy at a fundraiser for an Indian American who was running for office and she wanted to have uh, some comedy before her sales pitch. Her audience was all Indian uh, businessmen. I think there was one woman, but mostly a male audience. And so I, as always, ask about the audience because that's like, that's rule number one for me. Uh, or there's two rule number ones. One is be confident. One is know your audience. And these are college educated, wealthy, well-to-do donor type Indian uh, specialists, uh, uh, professionals, um, doctors, lawyers. And I said, I've had some issues with audiences before that don't necessarily speak English. I said, do they, you know, is English their first language? And they said, well, you know, they've all gone to school in either, you know, England or US, they're, they're, they're very articulate. Don't worry about that. I did a joke that references a, a Bugs Bunny cartoon, the Roadrunner and Wile E. Coyote. And I do this bit and there's always a laugh. And then I work, go on to the next line. I did that bit, no laugh, 
sweat. What did I do wrong? And I got I got to keep moving. But it threw me for a loop. And I learned later, you know, they speak English and they studied, you know, they all have college degrees, but they didn't grow up with that cartoon. So they didn't get the reference and they didn't know it was a joke. And I had brought all of this uh, panic and stress to myself because I was wondering, oh, did I say it right? Did I get the, did I mess something up? Did, you know, and, and now I'm doubting everything and my confidence kind of flagged. And then I had to pick it up and it, it ended up, you know, at the end of the day, no one's going to remember that except me. But it's one of those little moments where something that always works didn't work. And you have to deal with that in the moment. You smart. Oh, for sure. No, I appreciate you sharing that. Yeah, that's making me think of a few times similar things have happened in, in some of my keynotes. What I'd love you to talk about now, and I think this is very pivotal to kind of the unseen hours, you know, you you are a systems and a processes type of guy. I mean, you have this deliberate practice and so forth. And I know in our sessions that we work together, uh, you were telling me about like the, the comedy rules of three and a few other almost, I don't want to say formulaic, but kind of systems and processes that one would use, not even to be a stand-up comedian, but just to be able to interject more humor into keynotes or to any of the things that they do. So I, I know you teach this comedy class, which I recommend everybody checks out. Uh, talk to me about just some of these kind of rules of comedy, if you will, maybe just share one or two of them. Well, like I said, uh, being confident, I think is is crucial. I think if an audience senses that that you're struggling or or you lack confidence they will eat you alive and i think that is i think that works on a level that is you know far back in the brain or, or down the brain stem uh, some animal concept where you can tell when somebody's sweating and struggling so so be confident and that might mean you give yourself a pep talk or that might mean you just give yourself a little swagger in order to deliver some stuff I just killed two birds with one stone because that's how I roll. I'm Robert Mack and I kill birds. You know your audience. Is it gonna be a bunch of Indian businessmen who didn't grow up with American cartoons? Or is it gonna be a bunch of 22 year old drunks who um, know TikTok better than you do? So knowing your audience, you know, putting the funny thing at the end. Jokes are a lot about surprise and misdirection. So think about how you want the audience to think uh, red and it's blue. And so left turns. In my latest version of my class, I compare comedy to a bunch of different uh, different endeavors. I compare it to magic because it is the surprise and left turn. I compare it to poetry because it's about picking the right word. If you can say something in one word instead of a sentence or a paragraph, your writing becomes tighter and you get more laughs per minute. It's like music, there's a meter and a beat and a timing. It's like storytelling. There's a beginning and a middle and an end. And the beginning sets the scene, the middle adds some complexity and the end ties things up. So there's a lot of different ways to uh, approach comedy. But at the end of the day, I think the most important thing that I try to instill is that it's writing and you have to write this stuff. Writing is also rewriting. So, you know, you write it, you tweak it, you fix it, you try it again, you listen to the recording or watch the recording, and you continually make these, these rewrites and, and edits. I, I've recently uh, discovered that, you know, every form of writing has a different 
objective. You know, cookbooks are written in a certain way because they want to teach you a recipe and novels are written in a way because they want to put you in a different place. Comedy is also writing and the objective is to get a laugh. And for the people who are like, oh no, I'll just remember it. And I've got, a, I've got it recorded on my thing. You, you'll never be able to find that and you won't be able to edit it the way a writer should, which is, you know, on a paper or on a screen with the actual words. So comedy is a, is a very specific form of writing. And I want, I want that to be one of my main messages when I teach my class. Uh, I love that. And I'll, I'll certainly take that to heart. And, you know, uh, as you know, I'm going to give uh, an open mic a try, or at least a series of open mics a try coming up uh, very soon. And 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 I think based on what I already knew about you and some of the work we've done together, and then I think you've solidified that during this conversation, I feel pretty good about my plan going into it to at least give it a try. And I'm excited about that. You know, one thing that's always popped in my mind I watch and devour so much stand-up comedy. I mean, I'm not kidding. A couple hours a week, either on Netflix or on YouTube. Um, and I've seen, you know, some of Bill Burr's and, and Dave Chappelle's specials. I've watched them a dozen times each. And I know one of the biggest sins in comedy is, is biting off of some of what somebody else does is, is joke stealing, or I'm very cognizant of that. So part of me has this insecurity that I have devoured so much comedy from so many people that have covered almost everything out there. How am I going to be original? How am I going to come up with something new and fresh that Robert Mack, Bill Murr, and Dave Chappelle haven't already thought of? Because if you guys haven't thought of it, then maybe it's not that funny in the first place. How do you approach that? Do you do you study a lot of other comics and, and watch a lot of stuff, or do you try to stay in a silo uh, to keep your stuff innovative, talk to me about your process. When when, when I started, I, I I took in a lot of comedy, and to be honest, I'm pretty much in a silo now. I very rarely watch other comedy because I don't want to accidentally pick up something that somebody else has done. I mean, you may have absentmindedly taken in some ideas of jokes if you've taken in so much comedy. So I don't want that to happen. I like to, and and I really believe you know, to make it in this business and I haven't made it, but to make it in this business, you have to stand out and be different and, and have a unique voice or a unique look or, or a combination thereof. And so I, I don't want to be influenced by anything. So I kind of march to my own drummer. I heard that. Um, oh, and now I forgot his name, Tom Waits. Tom Waits doesn't listen to other music because he just wants, he wants his stuff to be his own thoughts. And, and that's what I kind of do. I, I really don't watch too much comedy. When I do watch it, I'm like, oh, that is so good. I'll never be able to do that. Or God, that was horrible. Why am I wasting my time? But I, I think when someone starts, they should take in as much comedy as possible to learn sort of what's been done and what hasn't been done. And just in the process of you standing up and writing these words down, you will find your own voice and your position and your job and your uh your livelihood and your your fatherhood all of that gives you a perspective that bill burr doesn't have and can never have and same with Chappelle. they're not public speakers they don't travel all over doing that so you do have as a human being you have a unique perspective that eight billion other people do not have and when you start, you're going to have a wide kind of range of, of looking at stuff. But as you find that voice, it becomes more narrow and it becomes a laser. And everything that you come up with will start going through that 
perspective or persona or character or voice, whatever you want to call it. Did you know 40% of all plastic is used only once and then it's gone, waste, yeah. That's, it's like a liberal arts degree or something. That's like... <laughs> Man, this has been so helpful. So the, the last thing I'll ask you, and I, I feel like you've just given me a masterclass and a blueprint of what I need to do over the next several weeks to prepare for my first open mic from, you know, I have been for the last several weeks, uh, been jotting down some, some notes and some ideas that I think I can elaborate on. A few of those I've actually already expanded and written out. Uh, I've gone and scouted out several different open mics. Uh, went to one in Frederick, went to one in Columbia, just went to one in Adams Morgan to kind of see what some other people are doing. And yeah, and I feel like if I take your process over the next several weeks and really drill down between the writing and the rehearsing, and then just get on stage and, and see what goes well and, and enjoy that and whatever doesn't look to tweak and refine it. Is there anything else that you'd, you'd tell me or recommend or give as advice as I, I make this plunge into the stand-up comedy world for the first time? Well, I would say that the number one hurdle most people have is, is fear of speaking in public, which you do not have to worry about. So you are well beyond where most people begin. I would uh, remind you to record every set because that is where you will mark your progress. And I would also remind you that I like, I like to hear that you have multiple sets lined up because I've talked to some people who put in a lot of work and they're gonna try it once. And that first set, whatever happens is going to be your worst set because you'll only get better because you might not be used to how the mic works or how the light works or where you are in the order, or someone gives you a light in the back of the room, which means wrap it up. So your first set, just, just by the nature of, of how performing is, will be the one where you, you learn a lot from it. So don't, don't have too high of an expectation. Those first, those first three sets, you will learn hundreds of things. And the first hundreds of sets, you'll learn thousands of things. Don't, don't put too much on the first one. Record all your sets. In everything else, it sounds like you're already doing. You're writing and you're rehearsing and you're watching a lot to see what other comics do that you like or don't like. I saw a guy recently who spent the whole act playing with the mic stand. He's holding a mic and then playing with the mic stand. And, and I'm not listening to him because I'm watching him do all this stuff. So, you know, keep it simple. Let, let the audience be accessible to the audience. Get them to like you then they will trust you. Start your set with some uh, shorter jokes to prove that you know what you're doing. Don't, don't come out and try a three-pointer. Do a couple layups. <laughs> Get some easy buckets. Yeah. They, will, they will, okay, this guy knows what he's doing. If you take a three-pointer and make it, that might be luck. If you take a three-pointer and miss it, which is more likely the case, like this guy doesn't know what he's doing. Oh, a couple layups. All right, this guy's got a couple jokes. They will they will pay attention to you, you know, be clear. Don't use words that could be misinterpreted that have multiple meanings. The, the, you can have a setup where there's a joke that's based on a, a pun, which could be interpreted different ways. And that's usually where a joke comes from. But if the punchline has a word that can be interpreted in two different ways, they might go, uh, did he mean this or that? So, um, the setups can be very wide, but the punchline should be crystal clear. Uh, that's so helpful. And, and if I'm not mistaken, is, is the average open mic slot around three or four minutes, maybe five minutes, just depending, but that's three minutes, usually three minutes. Okay. 
which is well, so that if they give you five, just say, no, I'm only going to do three today. Yeah. Which, you know, is so fascinating because I'm used to giving 60 to 75 minute keynotes with no notes. Like I know that material and yet to be able to come up with three or four minutes of something brand new for stand-up comedy is just a, a completely different uh, task and challenge and venture, but I'm, I'm super excited for it. And I'll, I'll certainly keep you posted on how it goes. And I'd love to, to watch if you want, if you want friendly faces in the audience and I'm available, I'd be happy. But sometimes you, you might not want that because it, it can be a, a crippling experience for your first time, but you've spoken enough in public where I'm sure that's not going to be an issue for you. Well, what's funny you brought that up. We, we can end on this because I've gone both ways because I, since I made that social post, I've had several people reach out saying, hey, Alan, I'd love to come cheer you on and support you. And part of me wants to not know anyone in the audience so that I know any laugh that I do get is 100% real and authentic. It's not friends and family laughing to make me feel good because that's what people do who care about you. So part of me wants to go in and not know a soul. And if I get some laughs, I know I earned them. If I don't get any laughs, then I know I've got even more work to do. So I'll keep you posted on that. I'm thinking the first couple of sets, I'm not telling a soul. And then after that, once I feel like I, I, I'm starting to go in the right direction, then I'll absolutely invite people in. I am the smartest man alive! I, that, I can understand that. You could also say, hey, I'm, I'm performing at these places, but don't tell me you're going to be there because I don't want to be distracted with, with someone in the audience. Um, somebody posted something recently about telling a comic, oh, I'm not going to be able to make your show tonight after all. Sorry. They said, you know what? Save that until the day after and say, hey, <laughs> you know, I, I wasn't able to make, make your show. I hope it went well because it, you don't want the comic to have too much stuff in their head. Like, oh, grandma's going to be in the audience or my friend Fred, whatever. Just, I think it's easier not to know who's going to be there until after you perform. For sure. so you, could, you could certainly list where, where these uh, gigs will be. Absolutely. I think that's a great approach. Well, man, I, I can't thank you enough. I mean, first and foremost, I love your comedy. I, I've thoroughly enjoyed all of the interactions that we've had and the help that you've given me. But for today in particular, I really appreciate you giving us a peek behind the curtain of what goes on during the unseen hours uh, of an internationally traveled uh, headlining comedian. So this was so much fun. Thank you so much, Robert. Oh, thanks for having me. I, I love the job. I love the process of it. And I can um, go on and on forever. All right, I know about burritos. I grew up outside Detroit in a little town called Tucson, Arizona. <laughs> which is like burrito headquarters, but now there's all these artisanal places like LL Bean Burrito Company, and you have to get the Portobello Burrito, which are these condescending mushrooms that are marinated in white wine and then reduced with black beans and goat cheese and fresh cilantro, and then it's pureed and put into a pastry bag and squirted into this organic hand-tossed whole tortilla on top with a sun-dried tomato white wine butter sauce on the sides of mixed baby green salad, roasted pine nuts and a red pepper vinaigrette and a blue corn polenta with a tequila lime chutney and uh, sprinkled with amaranth and quinoa. As you just heard my conversation with Robert Mack, I made several references to my commitment to signing up for a local open mic night and giving stand-up comedy a try. Well, a couple of weeks after we recorded this episode, I did my first ever stand-up comedy set. It wasn't an open mic per se. It was a three-minute bright new faces spot during an actual comedy show. And I figured this would be the last time anyone called my face bright or new, so I jumped at the opportunity. There was a host, 
two opening acts, a headliner, and me. Overall, I, I think it went pretty well. And by well, I mean I had fun, I got a few decent laughs, and I caught the bug. This is definitely something I want to pursue as a new hobby. Thankfully, it went well enough that the show organizer already asked me back to do five minutes at a show in late October. You see, in comedy, just like in basketball, your reward for being good is getting more time. In this case, stage time. I had my three-minute set filmed, and as the student I am, I've watched the video several times. Admittedly, I was a bit robotic and a tad unrefined, and I totally botched one of my jokes. Somehow, I forgot the main punchline. Uh, for those of you that don't follow comedy as closely as I do, the punchline is arguably the most important part. But you know what? I'm good with it. That's how first times go with anything. They're less than perfect. And that's why I'm so stoked to pursue this. I want to take something I'm very mediocre at, and in full transparency, something that scares me a little bit, and I want to work and work and work on it until I'm fairly decent at it. I'm most excited about the process and the preparation. Thinking of material, writing material, rehearsing material, trying material at open mics, watching that material on video, tweaking that material, and then trying and refining that material again and again. Which is exactly what I do as a keynote speaker. The worlds of stand-up comedy and professional speaking are very parallel. I look forward to getting as comfortable and confident on the stand-up stage as I am on the big stage as a keynote speaker. That will take time. That will take reps. That will take consistency. And that will most certainly take a very high level of commitment. But I'm ready to do that. I will make the time, outside of parenting and staying hyper-focused on my real job, to work on this new craft. In fact, I've already signed up for several more local open mic nights and have committed to doing that for the next several months. Now, if you're wondering why on earth would I start stand-up comedy when I'm four birthday candles away from my 50th birthday, let me explain. A couple of years ago, I made a commitment to always have something on my calendar to train for and something on my calendar to look forward to. To have something on the horizon that will test my limits, push me, and stretch me. The overwhelming majority of these events have been one-day experiences aimed primarily to test my physical limits. I've done the last man standing ultramarathon, a 26-hour Navy SEAL training simulation. I've hiked rim to rim of the Grand Canyon. I've done the hood to coast 200-mile team relay, and I even did a 10K Spartan race. And while I will continue to sign up for and prepare for these type of physical experiences, I've decided to broaden my approach and tackle stand-up comedy for three very distinct reasons. Number one, I'm a lifelong fan of stand-up comedy. I started listening to my dad's Steve Martin, Bill Cosby, and George Carlin albums. Literally, vinyl records played on a record player in middle school, and I was riveted. I would spend hours in our basement laughing by myself. Since then, I've devoured thousands of hours of stand-up comedy from just about every notable comic in the past 30 years. I've gone from vinyl to cassette tapes to CDs to iTunes to Netflix. I consider stand-up comedians, the really prolific ones like Dave Chappelle, Louis C.K., and Bill Burr, to be modern-day philosophers. I want to try to do what they do in some small way. I have unparalleled respect and reverence for stand-up comedians 
and I want to join their club. In the same way that I have so much respect and reverence for authors, and I wanted to join their club too. Number two, while I've learned to be comfortable and confident on the keynote stage, the thought of doing stand-up scares me. It intimidates me. It makes me nervous. But that uneasiness makes me feel alive. When I did my first stand-up set, it was equal parts terrifying and exhilarating. My goal is to develop the same level of confidence as a comedian that I have as a keynote speaker. Plus, there will be crossover. The reps, the process, and the approach I take to stand-up comedy will help me raise my game as a keynote speaker. And number three, I love the idea of trying something new, something that I'm not very good at. Embracing the process and making the personal commitment to do what it takes to consistently make improvement. It feels liberating to be a rookie again. To clarify, I view stand-up comedy as simply a new hobby, something to dive into and to have fun with. Some men my age learn to surf and others learn to play the guitar. I want to learn to be a stand-up comedian. I can already tell that one of the most challenging aspects of this new endeavor will be finding my unique, authentic, comedic voice in coming up with truly original material. But that challenge inspires me, and it's exactly what I had to do as a keynote speaker. When I first started professionally speaking, both my content and my delivery unconsciously mimicked and imitated my favorite speakers. It took time and plenty of reps for me to find my lane, find my rhythm, and find my voice. And I will do the same with stand-up comedy. I'll make sure to keep you all updated on my journey. Well, that's it for this episode. Thank you so much for investing your time with us. I hope we helped you raise your game and provided useful insight on how you can maximize the unseen hours. If you found this episode helpful, would you be open-minded to supporting the show? Would you be kind enough to share it with a friend or colleague? Would you take 30 seconds and leave us a rating and review? Those two things help support the show's mission and message more than you realize. And don't ever forget, a candle loses nothing by lighting another candle. If I can ever be of service to you or your organization, please visit allensteinjr.com or strongerteam.com for a variety of speaking and coaching resources. 